Welcome to Julie Gamick's Potluck Column, Monday Zoom Lunch Call. I'm Julie Gamick and the founder of the Iowa Writers Collaborative, plus producer of the annual Writers Retreat in Okaboji. This Monday Zoom lunch sessions are an opportunity for subscribers to engage with newspapers and newsmakers and people of note. Our participants are thoughtful and ask good questions, and they're polite. If you have a question, please use the Zoom feature to raise your hand and then unmute just before I call on you. Otherwise, please leave yourself muted to avoid that inevitable and disruptive barking dog or chewing of food or blowing of nose. With that, I'd like to welcome our featured guest today, my Iowa Writers Collaborative colleague, Dr. Robert Leonard. He's an extraordinary writer and radio journalist who lives in the rural Iowa town of Bussey. In addition to his columns featured in our collaborative, his work appears in the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other national publications. And in addition to breaking news, Bob's feature stories and personal reflections are thought-provoking and delightful. Every one of us on this call has a stake in the information we're about to discuss. We all live downstream. In other words, we drink the water that flows through the creeks and tributaries of Iowa. Recently, our state was named number two in cases of cancer diagnoses, and it behooves us to understand why so we can address the fundamental issue. Clean water should not be a partisan issue. Cancer does not care who we vote for. And Iowa's water quality, meaning our water quality, is the topic for today. Others on this call are writers with the Iowa Writers Collaborative. I see Laura Bellin is on the call. Chuck Offenberger, I'm sure I've missed a few, uh, Barry Pyatt, uh, so, and we also have Jared Strong of Iowa Capital Dispatch on the call, Todd Dorman with the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and I believe we have someone from the Register as well, Danelle Eller. Uh, this interview will be recorded and shared in podcast form with our subscribers, so everyone be on your best behavior. And with that, Dr. Bob Leonard, would you please introduce our other special guest today? Certainly. Chris Jones uh, is a research engineer and adjunct associate professor at the University of Iowa, uh, where he supervises supervised a, re a statewide real-time con continuous water monitoring network. He has a BA in chemistry and biology from Simpson College, a PhD in analytical chemistry from Montana State University in Bozeman. And he's doing important work and he's had an important blog, uh, but he's now moved to a substack and a new book coming out uh, through Ice Cube Press uh, called Swine Republic. I encourage everybody to get that, subscribe to his substack. And in just a few seconds, I want to thank our uh, journalists at these newspapers you mentioned that this story likely wouldn't have come to light and get the gotten the exposure it has through the work of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, the Iowa Capital Dispatch, the Des Moines Register, um, and maybe more that I've forgotten. Uh, community and local journalism, our newspapers are critically 
important. And we can't forget that. And with that, um, Chris, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and just how we got into the position we are today? So sure, thanks, Bob. And so I've been here at the university for eight years. Prior to this, I worked at the Iowa Soybean Association. I also worked at the Des Moines Water Works for eight years and then worked in Minnesota for a number of years uh, doing, uh, I worked for a, a laboratory there and then did consulting work for water and wastewater utilities. I'm originally from Ankeny. Um, and so my mom is alive, still lives over there as do my brother and sister. And so <clears throat> I was hired here uh, back in 2015 to manage the, uh, network of water quality sensors that were being uh, purchased and deployed as part of the Iowa nutrient reduction strategy. And so some of the money came from the nutrient reduction center in Ames, and some came from some line item uh, allocations from the legislature. And then other equipment was purchased from third parties, and that included uh, Iowa DNR, um, USDA, the Agricultural Research Service, um, were two of the big ones. Um, some were purchased uh, from through the HUD project that we had here, the Iowa Watershed Approach Project. Uh, and so there were other um, uh, funding sources for the purchase of the equipment. And then the operation of the sensor network um, was funded through the Iowa Nutrient Research Center, which is in Des Moines, uh, which is in Ames at Iowa State and uh, Matt Helmers runs that. And so uh, when the Nutrient Center was formed, um, there was sort of this handshake agreement, I guess you'd say, that a third of the, a third of the money would come over here to UN the University of Iowa to operate the sensor network. And it didn't start out that way, but the Nutrient Center is funded through the groundwater tax, which you might recall, uh, once funded the Leopold Center, um, and of course the Leopold Center has gone away, and so that money is still being collected through fertilizer sales, and that funds the Nutrient Center. And as I said, a third of that money uh, was coming over here to operate the, the sensor network, and so my work centered around that, um, the operation and maintenance of the um, of the network and then conducting research associated with the data generated by the sensor network. How many sensors are there, Chris? So we have, uh, I believe this year we have 66 nitrate sensors deployed. There's about 25 turbidity sensors that measure the clarity of the water and then some other um, other equipment as well. But the bulk of it is the nitrate and turbidity sensors. Well, what happens, you're leaving your position, uh, the legislature stopped funding this program. What happens now to, uh, to, to the information? Will the information be gathered someplace or how will we know? So I think the sensors probably will operate in some shape or form for the next several months. Uh, and so after that, it becomes, you know, more uncertain. And so everything's deployed now, it's out there. Um, and so I don't see the data collection. I don't think the data collection will stop at the end of the fiscal year, which of course is June 30th. I think it will go past that. But going forward, 
um, will it look like it does now, um, you know, in subsequent years, I think that's really um, in doubt. And so the information, you know, it's public information, it's available to the public. Um, but, you know, future data collection is definitely in peril. Laura Bellin has a follow-up to that. She's on the call. Could the censored network continue to operate if individuals or foundations step up to uh, provide ongoing funding? Yes, yes. And I think that's um, one of the possibilities that's being pursued right now. What would it cost, let's say, to, to duplicate, replicate what is currently um, under threat and probably going forward the data might be questionable. So the, the, the equipment's probably worth on the order of, I would guess about $3 million in total. Uh, maybe a little more than that if we had to replace everything new. And then there's other stuff associated with that. Vehicles, for example, um, we have shop space. And um, so let's say top end, maybe three to $4 million is the value of the capital equipment. To operate and maintain it is on the order of about 400000 a year, which really doesn't sound like too much when you think about the entirety of the state budget and the entirety of the budget of the University of Iowa. But that's the 400000 pays for two field staff. It pays about 60% of my salary. Um, it pays for service contracts, uh, telemetry, cell phone contracts, all that sort of thing. As I look at the now 78 participants on this call, there are a lot of people who are far smarter than I am about this issue. I see Neil Hamilton's on the call. He's written a book about the land. He's uh, uh, taught at Drake University about agriculture and land use and uh, he has a book coming up on on waters, water quality, I believe, or waters and streams in Iowa. So, Neil, I'm going to ask you to ask a question in a minute. But before I get to you, Neil, Chris, Iowa is an ag state. Is it possible to have clean water in Iowa? Well, it's certainly possible to have uh, water better than what we have. Um, and so I think, and that could be done fairly easily and with um, not an enormous amount of money that we could have something far better than what we have. Is it always gonna be degraded? Yes, it is. And part of the reason that um, that's the case is because we've done so much hydrological modification of our streams. And so, especially in Western Iowa, uh, take the Boyer River, for example, you know, it's 150 miles long, it's been straightened through its entire length. And so because we've straightened these streams uh, to square up the fields for farming, they've eroded downward. And so when you drive across the countryside and you see these streams down in these dirt-lined canyons, if you didn't know any better, you'd think that's the way they should look, and it's not. When Europeans got here, these prairie streams were shallow and they spilled over into the floodplain very frequently. Um, they were lined with vegetation. We didn't have all this um, exposed dirt and soil that's really vulnerable to erosion. And so in these streams where there's been this severe modification of the hydrology, 
And as I say, a Western Iowa, but also uh, Southern Iowa too, anything that flows to the Missouri River, basically. And there's really not much hope for those streams. Uh, and I've said that publicly that I think it's unwise to invest uh, the public dollars in these streams. Now in Northeast Iowa and, and uh, East Central Iowa, we do have streams that um, still have some integrity. And so, you know, think about the Turkey River, for example, the Upper Iowa River, the Maquoketa, the Wapsi, and the upper part of the Cedar, I think are all those watersheds all are salvageable. And so that's where we really need to focus our expenditure of public money in my estimation. Now, the fact that we live in a farm state, um, does that mean we as citizens are not entitled to, you know, clean water and, uh, you know, a natural resource experience, if you will? I would say, no, I, th I think we are still entitled to that. And can we get it? in a state where there's 25 million hogs and 80 million chickens and, you know, 70% of the land in row crop, um, that is a, a question that's an important question. And can we achieve these landscape scale objectives when we're farming at that scale? Can you explain the amount of waste produced by, by farm animals and compare it to population size of cities and towns? Yeah, so I made that map, what, four years ago now, and I, I never imagined that making that map would be maybe the most consequential thing I did in my career. And so, you know, it was, you know, making that map, I, Iowa has 56 Huckate watersheds. I looked at the animal populations in each of the watersheds and converted their waste to a human equivalent based on literature of values. And so, you know, our farm animals are excreting the waste equivalent of about 170 million people in this, in Iowa. And so wow. we think the population of California is what, 45 million or whatever. And so, you know, we have three or four Californias here in the state. And so, yes, it's an important question. I mean, when we're generating that much animal waste, can we get the uh, water quality objectives that we want? And I, for one, would say no. Well, I've got a lot more questions, but with so many people on the call, I want to make sure that those who have questions get a chance to do so. Neil, are you ready to uh, to do so? Hi. Good to see you, Neil. Good to see you, Julie, and good to see everybody and recognizing so many friends and names I know. Uh, well, my question, Chris, is, you know, the legislature's action in which they reduced the funding, I don't believe actually said that they have to stop the censors. And so in many ways, they've thrown the ball back to the folks at Iowa State, who with a reduced pot of money now are facing the decision of whether or not they want to be the ones responsible for stopping the censors. And uh, uh, it, it would strike me that that's a tough decision for a public university uh, to make. And so uh, is it predictable that Iowa State's going to step forward and say, uh, you know, we'll fall on our sword, we'll find the money, and we'll somehow continue the network? Well, Matt Helmers is, uh, you know, 
close associate of mine, and I've known him for a number of years, and Matt, and he's the director of the Iowa Nutrient Research Center at Iowa State, and a, a pretty well-known guy. And he has publicly stated that he sees the University of Iowa as being an important component of the Nutrient Center, and that the Nutrient Center would be lessened by the absence of the University of Iowa. So he's on the record with that. That being said, the Nutrient Center now has a number of staff and um, that help make it operate. And so about a third of the money, uh, as I understand it, uh, goes to the operation of the center itself. And that would include the staff salaries and so forth. The third of it comes over here for the reasons I described. And then about a third of it is used to fund uh, competitive research projects. So something's gonna have to give. <laughs> if Iowa State's going to continue funding this and, you know, I guess the, the question in essence is, would they have the uh, desire or the courage to um, sort of buck what the um, obvious um, objectives are in the legislature? I mean, you can make your own sort of Julie, if I could offer a follow-up, we've got a lot of bright writers uh, on uh, the call and in your group, and uh, maybe this would be the perfect opportunity for people to suggest that the Iowa Farm Bureau Federation might want to step forward and uh, provide the funding uh, that would uh, uh, continue the sensor network, since they have such a stake in Iowa's agricultural future. Well, so, yeah, I wouldn't hold my breath. <laughs> Well, that leads me to another question and kind of a big picture question. Let's say two things can be true. Iowa is an ag state. Iowa will remain an ag state. And Iowans deserve clean water. So let's just, for the sake of argument, say those two statements are true. What do individual farmers, what, do, what does the state, local, federal government need to do to ensure both those statements are true. This is a question for me. Yes, I'm sorry, yes. Um, so I would say that, um, you know, farmers, it's, it's wrong to expect farmers to shoulder the burden for this. Um, you know, they are the practitioners, right? They're out there doing things and then they operate within this system that we have and, so um, the prevailing conventional wisdom here is that, oh, if we can just get farmers to adopt, uh, if we just can inspire them to do this, that, or the other thing, that we will get the water quality that we want. And I do not, I, that is wrong, I think. And so we have this system, you know, the corn soybean system, our entire landscape has been engineered Right, so we've straightened the streams. We've uh, installed well over two million miles of drainage tile to lower the water table. We've removed all the perennial vegetation, and we've added uh, these enormous numbers of animals. And so, to think we can come in and put diapers or band aids on this, and that's automatically going to deliver. But, you know, the water quality we want for the Iowa citizens is a fantasy. It's a fantasy. And people in my circle know that. Okay. We know that. 
And that's not something that any of us is very anxious to talk about. Because then you call to question the entire system, right? And the, the problem that I have with this, my main problem is, um, you know, if, if this is what we decide to do, then fine. Um, you know, that's a policy question. But then at the same time, we ask the taxpayer to pony up the money to mitigate the pollution, while at the same time, they're indemnifying the system uh, and keeping it entrenched with uh, policies, with subsidies. And so the taxpayer is essentially paying to have their own water polluted. And I think that is perverse. And I think people need to talk about that. Well, talk is cheap. What do people need to do about it? <laughs> you know, I get programs all the time and um, inevitably people ask that question, what can I do? And, you know, also inevitably somebody from the audience will shout out vote. And I say, you know, to me, the voting just isn't going to cut it. It's got to be more than that. And so to think that this is solely uh, can be laid on the doorstep of the Republican Party, which a lot of people want to do, is wrong. And so Democrats here in Iowa have been uh, all too willing to go along with this. And, you know, one of the big things is ethanol. Um, you know, from a scientific perspective, you know, ethanol doesn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, when considered within the context of all the other environmental consequences that it has, uh, degraded water quality and loss of habitat, all these other things, um, you know, why are we doing it? It's, it's crazy, but yet look at any TV commercial for any Democrat running for natural national office, what are they doing? They put on their farm garb, right? And they stroll across a farm, st stroll across a farmyard with some millionaire farmer and talk about ethanol. And so to think that Democrats are not culpable in all this is totally wrong. And so what can people do to change it? Well, it's gotta be grassroots, right? It's gotta be grassroots organizing. That's the only thing that's gonna change this in my mind, unless there's leadership at the federal level that's willing to go down this regulatory path. And there just isn't. And you know, Tom Vilsack as Secretary of Agriculture again is clearly not going down that path. He stated it, he's um, definitely, uh, for the existing system. And so, you know. All right. Well, we have a lot of folks on the call I want to get to. Liz Garst, I hope you're willing to comment and ask a question or make a point. And uh, also, Mary Ellen Miller has her hand raised. We have a number of people on this call who I know are farmers, and they're probably those on the call that I don't know yet who also are in the business. I'd love to uh, encourage you. <laughs> to uh, participate in this call. Liz, I see you're unmuted. Welcome. Uh, the question is what can be done? I like to joke that one thing everyone should do is drink more beer and whiskey. So we have a demand for small grains. So we'll have more diversity in our landscape. Um, but if you're not into beer and whiskey, the farm bill is coming up uh, this fall. 
And I think the message is simple. We as taxpayers want more environmental performance for the subsidies we provide. We give through the federal crop insurance something like a billion bucks a year to Iowa farmers. I'm not sure of that statistic, but it is a lot. And we are not asking anything in exchange for the dollars of subsidy we're providing. The 85 Farm Bill had a, a program where you had to reduce your soil erosion to below five tons an acre, as they defined it then, um, in exchange to be in the, the subsidy program then. We, that's not regulation, but that's not leaving it to voluntary either. So it's a good time to talk to your congressman about we want more environmental performance for the, the subsidies provided. So Liz, you've, you've made a career, uh, you and your family, of uh, making the land that you've farmed through the years uh, sustainable. Uh, is that, is that, if that, that's a fair assessment, I would say. Um, how did you do it? Well, I'm a big fan of no-till and cover crops um, and terraces and waterways. Especially I'm a big fan of those things uh, because I'm uh, self-interested. Uh, I think climate change in Iowa's main symptom is torrential heavy rains, four inch an hour kind of rain, seven inches, 10 inches, huge rains. And our landscape is not hardened for the reality of this torrential rainfall we have. Uh, and it's having double damage because our soil health is so bad that it won't hold together in water and is just dissolving away. Uh, so I think it's uh, cover crops, no-till, terraces and waterways. I, I know they've improved my yields and they're protecting my soil. And uh, so I do it for self-interest. Uh, but there's a lot of absentee farming going on in Iowa. A lot of people who uh, are being ruled by the despotism of custom, meaning they're still farming like their dad did and not waking up to the realities of today. Thank you, thank you. Jim Sayre, you're on the call. I don't see you, but I know you're here someplace. You're currently farming. Uh, please unmute and if you would join in this conversation. What are you doing? your current farm practices, if you would. And if you could wave a magic wand and have federal, local and state government and Farm Bureau and, and uh, academic institutions in the state do what you need to do as a farmer, what would it be? Well, thank you for the question. And I will first say exactly what Liz just said. Now I am a old retired person, farms a very small farm up in Humboldt County. Uh, soybean, corn rotation forever. My dad always did that. I worked in town. So my small farm, I put in wetland about two years ago and it became dry. So it was a bad year to put in wetland. But cover crops, no-till, those are the two things I do on my corn and soybean rotation. Uh, I'm on the Soil Water Conservation Board also. And what we do is administer funds. And I think a lot of you just know that is we pass through money to practices that are approved and we approve those, those kind of things. Uh, I will argue or I will refer to the comment just made about the National Farm Bill, though. 
if it had conservation uh, requirements in that to receive some of the, the money, uh, rather than just based on historical corn yield, or it could maybe say, you know, historical corn yield is not the only thing you measure, but also add some benefit for conservation measures that may have reduced your historical yield, because that can happen as well. That's kind of the concern we see up here that conservation farming is going to reduce my bushels per acre. Why would I ever do that? And personally, I have experienced that a little bit, but also the decreased input costs, which those are very important. You know, you don't do tillage, that saves a lot of money. Uh, so my perspective is based on an old person that tries things on a small scale because I can. Uh, so I certainly cannot advise the, the large producers that rent. <laughs> a friend yesterday said, yeah, he, he has a family farm in Northern Missouri rented by uh, to a tenant that has 16,000 acres. I said, wow, I, I couldn't imagine Missouri even having that size of a tenant that rents that many acres. So with absentee landlords, I guess that's another uh, target group, uh, specifically women. And we, some of us know Jean Eels, who has targeted that group. So the education is part of it, I'm, but I'm whining too many things, but I guess I'll go back to the, the Farm Bill and regulation because without that, it's all volunteer. And I think we've not seen great results with the voluntary approach only. So if I could respond to uh, the last two. Um, so we should uh, admire and applaud farmers that adopt. Uh, these sorts of practices, especially when they don't produce uh, any increase in revenue for them. And so we, we should do that. Uh, but I also will say uh, there's no examples of problems of this magnitude being solved through individual actions. There, there just is, there's no examples. There, there's no evidence that we can get the objectives that we want through individual actions. And so, as Liz mentioned, the 85 Farm Bill with conservation compliance, I mean, I view that as a law. I view it as a regulation. Um, and so, for me, personally, I think, you know, there has to be regulations because the taxpayer is supporting the system. And since we're supporting it, we should have a say in how it's operated. And so when we give farmers license to do whatever they want on the land, basically, um, and then we ask the taxpayer to come in and pay to mitigate the pollution, I think those are morally bankrupt policies that, um, that are in place here. Chris, before do I, I go to another call, and Michael Franken, I see you're on the call. I know you have strong opinions about that. I'd love to bring you in. But, but first, Chris, it seems to me that academic freedom is a real issue that you've brought to light here. Is that something that is more widespread than we'd like to think? Well, what's more widespread than what everybody <laughs> realizes is self-censor, self-censorship. And so um, there's very few people in academia that um, want to uh, risk their place. And so um, people in academia, scholars, they're like farmers. So farmers farm, it's not their vocation, it's their avocation. People in academia are the same way. Scholars are the same way. They study because that's what they love to do, right? And so 
getting a job at a, a PhD grants granting institution is like that is good as you can get for uh, a scientist. It doesn't get any better than that. And once you have that, you're not going to want to risk that um, place. And so as a consequence, we have self-censorship. And so we do things that um, keep us doing the things that we love to do, which is studying these problems. And I think in this particular case, the problem of water quality becomes like a toy to us where we want to play with it. And, um, and it helps us um, have our place. And so it helps bring in uh, funded projects and it helps uh, publish papers and it helps us get PhD students. And so all the things that are currency within academia, this problem helps uh, scholars get that stuff. And as a consequence, we become really good at trying to impress each other, but we, you know, we don't keep our eye on the thing here. And that thing is, are we improving water quality for the citizens of Iowa? And clearly we haven't, at least not to the extent that we, you know, the public wants. And so I say this all the time, and a lot of people don't like me for this. Academia is part of the problem here. It's part of the problem, without a doubt. A lot of money comes from uh, special interests that not, don't necessarily benefit from rules and regulations about clean water, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely, a lot. Uh, so, you know, there's basically nobody in establishment agriculture that wants any part of it to be regulated. Are any of the uh, waters in Iowa clean and is the water drinkable in your view? So I think people that live in big cities have little to worry about in terms of the quality of their drinking water. There is evidence that nitrate is more harmful to, to adults than what we thought when the Safe Drinking Water Act was established in 1974. And so the limit for nitrate was there is 10 parts per million as nitrogen that was meant to be protective of infants. Uh, but now there's research that shows uh, from Europe and from the US that shows uh, drinking water at far lower nitrate concentrations than that uh, presents a risk to adults uh, over the long term. And so I think, you know, this science about uh, drinking water that's high in nitrate and the human health consequences is still emerging. Um, but by and large, I mean, I drink tap water. I drink tap water here in Iowa City and don't think anything about it. But out in the countryside, I'll be honest with you, I would not drink water from a farmstead well without knowing that it's been tested. What about small towns? Well, small towns are going to be in between those two things. And so the small towns, they are regulated, right? And so they do fall under the um, umbrella of the Safe Drinking Water Act and, and the regulatory action of DNR. But certainly the quality of the water in these small towns could be expected to fall in between, you know, the big cities and the private farmstead wells. Okay. Okay, let's go back to the calls. Hey, Kirk, um, Kirk, I see you uh, on the call. If you have any questions or comments from your 
view looking out over Lake Okaboji. Uh, I'd love to hear those. But Mary Helen Miller, you are up next. If you would unmute and ask your question or make your comment. Good to see you. Uh, uh, real quick, uh, I'm a soil and water conservation district commissioner too, like Jim is. Um, and I just want to give you a perspective on the boots on the ground, I call it. Uh, I'm in Wayne County, South Central Iowa, and one of my commissioners, we were talking about um, the issue of water quality and cover crops and that some commissioner made the comment that, well, the reality is ethanol has a life, you know, and anywhere from 10 to 20 years, it'll be out of business. And my fellow commissioner, who's 96 years old, said, what? What do you mean? And my other commissioner said, well, electric cars are going to take over. And my 96-year-old commissioner said, nah, never going to happen. That's just a fed. That's what you're dealing with. This man is on the Farm Bureau board. He's on the fair board. He's an influencer. And yet I brought some books to a commission meeting one day and passed them around and said, here, these are books I've read and want to take a book. And everybody took a book but him. And I said, you don't want a book? And he said, I don't read books. That's the reality. And the last thing I want to say is thank you, Liz, for inviting us, uh, some of us, to meet with Undersecretary Bonnie last week. I, I had to bite my tongue because I don't know how many times he said, regulations will not work. We can't regulate the use of private land. It all has to be voluntary. I, I was sitting in the front row. I, I just had to really work to control myself. Uh, I was just so upset with that, but he didn't say it once. He said it repeatedly. Regulations won't work on private land. It has to be voluntary. So that's what we're up against, people. That's what we're up against. So I really appreciate Chris taking on the cause, but he's right. It's going to take a lot more people. So I would say they won't work for farmers. Regulation won't work for farmers. So what's the objective here? Is it to work for the common good or is it to work for farmers? And so one of the things I harp on all the time is fall tillage. So if we ban fall tillage, would that reduce uh, wind erosion in the winter? Of course it would, right? It's insanity to say that it wouldn't. And so when people say regulations won't work, I would ask, who, who do you mean it's not working for? And, and so I, I am, let me tell you, having Tom Vilsack here has been demoralizing for me to see the last couple years uh, with him at USDA. And I, I am happy to go on record about that. You it's, just did. It's, it, it is demoralizing to me. Yes, I, I see our reporters on the call taking notes. Tom Vilsack's demoralizing. What does he, what should he do, Chris? Well, as I said, we need, we need common sense regulations. And so like, you know, you hear this guy that's farmed 16,000 acres, right? Uh, so we have that in Iowa. And so the lack of regulations allows that to happen, to occur. So let's say you think you have to do tillage. Let's say, you know, you feel like you have to do tillage and you're farming 5,000 acres or, you know, 10,000 acres. 
you know, all of a sudden you have to do fall tillage if you're going to get it all done. You can't get it all done in the spring. Right. And so the lack of regulation creates these perversities in terms of like farm size and land price and all these other consequences. And so that's where I think some regulations would actually help the small farmers. And I'm always uh, quite astonished that small farmers are not for regulation because, you know, it's going to pinch. It would pinch the big guys right? And it might make more land available for young farmers, uh, would, you know, reduce land prices. Once you, once you make somebody responsible, financially and legally responsible for the pollution coming off that land, all of a sudden you decrease the value of that land. And so we hear all the time where young farmers can't get in. Well, it's no mystery why they can't. It's because land's so expensive. Okay, I'm going to call on my colleagues in the Iowa Writers Collaborative, Mary Swander, Chuck Offenberger, Larry Stone, Pat Kinney, those are the ones I see uh, on my screen to ask a question. And also, Mike Franken, let me go to you too. I know having, having gone uh, on a tour of your childhood home and seen the stream where you used to swim and have you talk about how talk about demoralizing, it was for you to realize that that crick no longer sustains life. I'm sure you have some feelings about this, what we're talking about. And you're on mute. Well, certainly. It, I mean, I think everybody who um, has a, a foot in rural America, first of all, thank you for this, uh, Julie. Thanks for bringing everybody together. Uh, it's nice to see all the uh, familiar and friendly faces. Um, Anybody who has a foot in rural America knows that we're not the same. And, and the, 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 the cricks of 1965 that were full of amphibious creatures and fish and, and crawdads, turtles, et cetera, muskrats, they're no more, not in Northwest Iowa that, that I know of. I, mean, I would expect there's some, but the drip drab of the runoff of the various feedlots there's, there's no county extension agent who's uh, giving out uh, violations on those, on those situations. And this has been going on for 60 years. The slow ooze down the, down the, uh, down the ditches into the cricks. And, and, that's, and of course, the, and Liz Gars can talk about the molecular size of the soil and with the increased rain and how it how it uh, runs off and doesn't soak in, et cetera. All of these are issues. And, and when I did a campaign, we, I, I made a point of testing the water everywhere I went, sometimes cupping it in the bathroom sink if I couldn't get it out of a faucet, a proper faucet. But by George, I did everywhere I went. And the variation to... Um, the variation in the state is remarkable, and some of it is vile. I mean, absolutely vile. You couldn't possibly make a good cup of tea or coffee out of it, let alone drinking it clear um, or clear, as clear as it can be. Uh, I, I see it as a principal detriment to living in the state of Iowa and having you know, 
been to 150 different countries or more. Um, the, well, I see the United States, certainly the Midwest, drifting to where Angola is, where you wouldn't want to drink out of the faucet anywhere. Uh, and I, I drink tap water. I don't drink out of plastic bottles. I don't try to anyway. Uh, but it's getting ridiculous. And, uh, and you can't leave it to industry to regulate themselves. They will not do it. This is a job for government. Chris? Well, I agree 100%. And, you know, I've said, you know, I've used this sort of third world uh, comparison at times, and I don't say that anymore because I don't like to impugn the, the uh, character of the third world because, you know, we're... <laughs> They might think, "Wow, we're better than those guys, right?" And so, um, and so, I think that's right. It's vile. Yes, it's vile. And so, Northwest Iowa. So the Floyd River. I don't know who ever has been up there, but the Floyd River is vile, right? That's one of the vile things. And this is no kid. DNR used to stock brook trout in the Floyd River, you know, way back. So brook trout the most sensitive species that we have at one time could live in the Floyd River. Wow. And then, I don't know if a carp can live in there. Chris, what yeah. kind of pressure is the DNR under? How is it different today than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Well, um, so I've known a lot of people work at DNR over the years uh, and have been close friends with a lot of them. And I would say it's never been <laughs> never been particularly great when it comes to enforcing um, the, you know, the regulations that we do have. And why? So, why? Because, well, because, um, you know, it's the same thing they've got, you know, if you're having to deal with farmers every day, let me tell you, it's, it's not fun to go through your working life having everybody mad at you. I can tell you from experience, it's it's exhausting, right? And so I think that's something that pe people at DNR have to live with. There's a a terrible um, staffing problem there, and so we have um, eight thousand permitted CAFOs in the, in the state of Iowa, right? And so there's maybe about fifty people in total in DNR that's work, working on enforcement of the rules. Well, what's 8,000 divided by 50? It's still a big number. And so the number of visits that they're going to make to individual CAFOs is, is very small and it's gonna be very infrequent. And so consequently we have regulation by fish kill. And so they don't do anything until somebody calls in a fish kill. And, you know, in a lot of these streams, fish can't even live in them. And so there's never a fish kill. And so that is the, how the regulatory system uh, is, is now with DNR. And so I, you know, I'm not privy to the inner workings of DNR. I think, I think the combining DNR with uh, parks and uh, fisheries and outdoor recreation and stuff, combining the, the enforcement part and then uh, the natural resources part is a mistake. I think that's a terrible mistake. And I think that needs to be separated. There needs to be uh, you know, a separate agency in charge of regulation and enforcement. 
And I think um, a lot of the blowback from that negatively affects people in those other sections, which I spoke of that, you know, are really doing the best they can under extremely difficult circumstances. Can you trust the data coming out of DNR? What I don't trust is how they interpret it. And so we see that they um, delisted the Cedar River and is impaired about six months ago. And, and I mean, we know the Cedar River is as high nitrate, but yet DNR uh, declared that, you know, it's no longer polluted for nitrate. And so they're delisting it, taking away the TMDL. And so those are clearly sort of uh, policy uh, driven stuff they, they want to attach data to it, but I'm sort of dubious that they're doing that in um, ways that we would do it as independent scientists. Okay, Mary Swander, please ask your question, make your uh, comment, and then Bryce Oakley, you're following Mary. Yeah, now my comment is I don't know why we put up with this stuff. I mean, every it, 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 the whole system is so corrupt. I taught for 30 years at Iowa State. I know what I'm talking about. I think we need to elicit generation X and Z to help us. We're all of the same generation. We're sitting here going, oh, what are we going to do? And, you know, get to ask them to please help us protest this, get out in the street, raise awareness, make Chris's book and all Iowa reads, you know, it'll probably be banned in our libraries, but who cares? And uh, put it on a t-shirt, do anything, but, you know, keep on keeping on with this status quo. Mary, like, you've read Chris's book. What, what, what? I've read Chris's book. It's really brilliant. It's really good. He speaks out about an issue that you just read these comments in the chat that have been, you know, squelled, you know, hidden from the average Iowan. And we need to make this like a big, huge state issue. It's a national issue. This goes on all through the Midwest and other farming regions. And, you know, we just sit here and like, oh, the water is, is poisoned. And we're, oh, how, why are we having cancer? Come on. I mean, this is just a huge crisis. And so Chris has got a great book. We need to push it, put it out there in every venue we possibly can. That's my two cents. All right, thanks. Chris, you wanna comment? Um, well, thank you for the po positive feedback on the book. I, and, you know, I will say that, um, you know, the book, I don't think there's any sort of uh, revelations there. I think what the book does is it connects the dots for people. And so, you know, there's no groundbreaking science in the book, certainly. But, you know, I tried to put it in a context where people, you know, general audiences could relate um, and then connect the dots for people. And so the politics and the economics and the cultural stuff and the science all intersect to give us the condition that we have. And so I think if the book offers anything, it just is this dot connecting um, that I- Yeah, but it's very readable. And the, mo you know, the general public is not gonna read a scientific article on this. 
they're going to read something that you know is for the popular audience and that's strength of the book one of the strengths so, you know this is my so i'm a reader and when i pick up a book i want to be entertained right, right. <laughs> you're going to invest 13 hours or whatever it is in reading that book, I want to be entertained. And so that's how I tried to write it. It's how I try to write all my stuff. I want people to be entertained when they read. Right. Well, let's get it out there. to the. All public. right. Well, so Chris, in, in prepping for this uh, call today, I started reading some of your blog posts. I'm a little late to the party. I wish I'd been reading them all along. Uh, there, you know, you use words like propagandist and <laughs> things like that. And I thought, well, you know, you don't see that in a normal academic uh, treatise. So I, I expect to have a good time with your book, and I congratulate you on that. Uh, before I get to Bryce, you mentioned how exhausting criticism is. Do tell us about what happened when uh, you were informed that the legislature, that there were those in the legislature that wanted to silence you. So, um, so that you know, I I would I was aware that um, there was this undercurrent in the legislature, right? Of um, that they um, didn't like what I did, and so you know there was an um, uh, incident a few years ago. Uh, Chad Engel. A farmer from Fayette didn't like one of the posts and and complained about it to my superiors and and so I knew that people hated these things. Some people hated them and um, and so I think um, what's behind a lot of the um, the elimination, if you will, of the sensor network, if indeed that does happen, or the defunding of it. And then the, the blog kind of going away is that all the messaging for the nutrient strategy is going to be concentrated over in Des Moines. And, you know, the Agribusiness Association of Iowa um, has their unit called NREC, Iowa Nutrient Research and Education Council, that collects data, practice data from the um, uh, retailers, and they make conclusions about, you know, progress towards nutrient strategy goals. And um, I think uh, I think that's part of what's happening here. They, they want to get control of the message. And so it's not so much the censors and it's not so much the blog. It's the fact that, you know, all of this over here is creating a message about progress towards water quality objectives that conflicts with what the industry wants to communicate to the public. And so that's how I read it. Okay, we have uh, Bryce and then Chuck Offenberger. Bryce, go first. Well, I only hesitantly go before Chuck Offenberger, but I don't know whether it was in Neil Hamilton's book or in Art Cullen's book, but one of the most insightful observations about how this is going to be resolved is a very perverse and unwelcome uh, proposal, if you will, or observation, and that is this. When, when agriculture has become sufficiently industrialized and solving this problem just becomes a, um, a, a cost of doing business, that is the most likely way this will get resolved unless there's a political 
uh, solution uh, to this problem otherwise. I think that's an interesting observation. It's a sad one because it won't happen tomorrow or the next day, but down the road, industrialized agriculture could solve this problem. I don't know whether we can afford to wait that long. Thanks, Bryce. That's more of a comment than a question, so I'll move to Chuck Offenberger. Chuck, thank you. Um, terrific discussion here. Two thoughts on this. Um, one is that I've I've come to believe that really uh, environmentalists, if that's what we want to call a bunch of ourselves, and farmers should be on the same side of all this. Uh, we're working to protect the farmer's most valuable asset long range is what we're all talking about doing by cleaning up the water and protect and regenerating the soil. It's critical that people like Liz Garst and Neil Hamilton and Jim Sayers and others who can talk the language of farmers be out there convincing farmers that they're not the enemy. They're, they're on the same side. And the second thing is, is maybe I, I'm thinking that maybe as I listen to this, I'm thinking maybe ethanol is a tool to use on this. It's becoming clearer and clearer that ethanol has no long range future in terms of electronic vehicles and all of that. And so we, farmers are gonna need guidance in how to wean themselves away from, and from ethanol and not go broke. And so, and I think that the answer to our problems may be all wound up in that. Uh, I'd include Art Cullen as being on the side of farmers too. I mean, they're pissed off at him all the time, but he really is right in the truth and he understands it. And he's got a relatively conservative economic view when you get down to it. I mean, they, they should quit hating on art and realize what a grand character is and listen to his wisdom. But thank you, Chris Jones. You've become a new hero of mine too. Absolutely. Chris, how do you see the uh, the next few weeks and months unfolding for you now that you're moving into retirement? What's What are you going to be doing? And how's your morale? Well, I'm sad about the way things have ended, honestly. Um, I, uh, you know, when I decided to retire, I did not have any big plan or grand plan, and I still don't. And so I'm kind of uh, charting my path here. Um, I feel like... Um, you know, I, I feel like I failed and, you know, the water's not better, right? <laughs> I took your money and the water's not better. And so in, in some ways I feel like I failed. Now have I produced some um, good information and uh, entertained some people with my writing? Yeah, uh, but um, so I don't know if I, you know, if I feel like I can affect uh, change here, then I'll try. Um, but I just don't know. I have my Substack set up. I think you mentioned that. And so I probably have a thousand essays in my head I can still write. And if, if people want me to do that, I suppose I will. But um, uh, I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around all of it. I guess that's where I'm at with it. 
Well, you have a community. I think part of why those of us who are writing for the Iowa Writers Collaborative started doing it so, so we don't feel alone, you know, so we don't feel helpless and hopeless that maybe there are things that can happen as a result of the conversations and the writing that we're doing. And the more that we're encouraging people to tell their stories and their truths, that maybe others will, will find the strength to do so too. You've been an inspiration. You, you are taking enormous personal risk. Uh, I, I probably shouldn't even say this, but I wouldn't be surprised if you are at risk physically for speaking out. And I hope I hope that's uh, not true, but I wouldn't be surprised. We're living in a world where, where we are constantly uh, shocked, but not surprised. So thank you, Chris Jones, for what you're doing. And thanks to all of you on the call. I am delighted to have Larry Stone as a part of our Iowa Writers Collaborative now. He's a conservation with uh, tremendous uh, experience covering uh, the state and parks and streams and rivers and was a part of the Bloody Run lawsuit. We'll have him on the call at some point to talk about that. But I urge all of you on this call, wherever you are in life, to think of one thing you can do. I mean, this is a life and death issue, and it's, it's not going to go away just because people aren't uh, reporting the nitrate level in our water anymore. It's, uh, it's going to impact all of us. We do live downstream from these waters and it affects our children, our grandchildren and uh, everyone we know and love. So again, thank you, Chris, and thank all of you for being on this call. And uh, we'll have you back, Chris, if you're willing. Any final- Oh, yeah, you bet, you bet. Any final remarks from you, Chris? And uh, Bob? No, thank you for the invitation. Uh, thank you. I. Never could have imagined I'd ever have an audience that I have now, so. Well deserved. Bob, thank you for introducing us to Chris through your column. Any final remarks from you? No, just thanks to you and thanks uh, to Chris and all the other writers in the Writers Collaborative. And especially today, my thoughts are with the journalists that will be out there reporting on, on this issue and continuing to dig in. And so very much support their efforts. So thank you. Thank you. And if somebody could copy with what's in the meeting chat, I'm not, for some reason or another, I'm not able to do that. If you could copy and paste that and send it to me, I'll include it in the column when I wrap this up and send it out. Please tell your friends about what we're doing here. Encourage them to subscribe to Bob Leonard, all of the people on this call, Mary Swander, Chuck Offenberger, Larry Stone, Pat Kinney, everybody. And uh, thank you. Bye-bye.